Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today is another special episode because it is another Patreon-sponsored episode. This one is sponsored by Rich Senwald, and it is going to be focused on Little Big Adventure, an action-adventure game developed by Adeline Software International and published by Electronic Arts and Activision in 1994 for the MS-DOS computer platform, with ports to several Japanese computer platforms, including FM Towns and PC-98 a year later, followed by a Sony PlayStation port in 1997, and eventually even a mobile port in 2014. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 67. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. As today's sponsor, Rich Sanewald did send over a message that he would like everybody to listen to. So without further ado, take it away, Rich. <sighs> a little big adventure. Oh, that sigh kind of says it all, really. This game is a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, and more recently, quite uh, entertainingly, a bit of a meme within the CGT community. Um, sorry, ISO. I have very fond memories of this game as a child. Uh, it was one of the first games I was really able to get my head around and play. It came out when I was about seven years old. Um, and my dad gave it to me and my brother, I think, for a Christmas or some sort of event. Um, and I was just hooked on the whimsy, the music, the characters, the environments. I'd never seen anything quite like that before. Prior to that, I'd really just focused on the Atari Amiga games and point-and-click adventure games. So being able to really dive into the world, move around as I wanted, was amazing. And it had some very different mechanics um, in the way the combat worked and the movement worked. In particular, the m magic bouncy ball. Um, now, if there's an element in a game that can be broken or can be cheesed, I will usually find it. More recently, my my Warcraft days of raiding were spent kiting bosses into cities, glitching through walls and breaking encounters. So a magical bouncy ball that bounces at funny angles with quite half-baked physics um, that deals damage to robot em enemies. Um, yeah, that, that was... I spent a lot of my time getting through the game by just hiding in corners and, and finding weird angles to bounce my bouncy ball uh, and beat bosses which or, or enemies that I'd managed to get rammed into corners uh, yeah I, 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 anyway I digress um, so I wanted to just force Tony to share that experience which I am sure he is very thankful for now revisiting this game as an adult has been a mixed bag looking at it through the eyes of today as uh, as we like to say it is very unforgiving and it has elements that are very frustrating. However, if you put the time into it and get past the Temple of Boo, you will find that it is a very rewarding and very, very charming game. I'll always remember it fondly, but I don't know whether it was best left as a memory. Thank you, Rich, for the sponsorship and for the support. If you would like to sponsor an episode or just get in touch with me, there are a few ways you can do that. I have an X account, which is at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including our weekly gaming challenge. 
This past weekend was wide open. It was basically a situation where you could bring whatever games you wanted to bring, and if you beat them, you would gain 20 points for each game defeated. And at the end of the weekend, ISO managed to beat four games. That got him 80 points. He remains in first place with 417 points. In an absolutely stunning turn of events, Rich Senewald completed three games this weekend for 60 points. That brings him up into a tie for second place with Boogie Gnu. Both of them have 147 points. I am then next with 99 points. Then I am the Dizzle managed to complete two games this weekend. That added 40 points to his total. That brings his total up to 67 points for fifth place. Left-handed guitarist is in sixth place with 35 points. And public self is in seventh place with 13 points. If this sounds like a good time, there's only one way that you can actually join in, and that is by joining us out on Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. You get an exclusive Patreon bi-weekly podcast expansion pack, and you also get a special channel on Discord and a couple other perks. So it's kind of a good deal. If you want to get more involved there, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is the place to do it. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon members. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign star ratings or numerical rankings or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should stop everything you're doing and go play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. They're not quite Pantheon level, though, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still recommend that you check them out today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broad population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Little Big Adventure.
Big Adventure is an action-adventure game developed by Adeline Software International and published by Electronic Arts and Activision in 1994 for the MS-DOS computer platform, with a variety of ports to a number of platforms in the years that followed. Before we can talk about Little Big Adventure, we need to talk about the game's creator, Frederic Reynal, a French game developer who, over the years, would be responsible for some pretty revolutionary titles in the computer and video game industry. The thing is, though, Renal isn't exactly a household name, despite numerous accolades and industry firsts that in some ways rival the accomplishments of more well-known and celebrated game designers. So let's address that disparity by shining a spotlight on Frederick Renal. From a very young age, Renal had always been interested in technology, and he began creating his games while he was still in high school, focusing on some simple games designed for the Sinclair ZX81 home computer. For those who may be unaware, the Sinclair ZX81 was a home computer primarily distributed in the UK and was the immediate predecessor to the ZX Spectrum, which is perhaps a bit more well-known. At the time Renal began developing his earliest games, he didn't have access to a ZX Spectrum because, well, it hadn't been released yet, so he settled on the ZX81, complete with 256 by 192 pixels monochrome resolution on his monitor, a 3.25 megahertz 8-bit CPU, and up to 32 kilobytes of RAM. While those specs might seem downright paltry in comparison to what we have today, for the time, they were pretty much on par with other computer platforms. And Reynal put those specs to good use, creating his first commercial game, Robix 500, while he was working at his father's computer shop. That game sold a grand total of 80 copies over its lifetime, which, as you might imagine, didn't really make it onto any sales charts. But it did prove to Reynal that he could, potentially, make money creating games. More successful, though, was a somewhat tangential effort that Reynal began working on a couple of years later, which was the creation of a variety of emulators to access the Minitel online service. Now, if you're like me, you might be asking yourself, what the heck is a Minitel online service? Well, it turns out, Minitel is actually an interesting slice of history itself, as prior to the World Wide Web, which we all know and love and is pretty much pervasive, Minitel was the most successful online service in the world. Now, Minitel was primarily a French online service launched in 1980, and right from its inception, it offered capabilities that wouldn't become commonplace on the modern internet for the next 15 years. Things like email, online purchases, chat, travel tickets, all of those and more were available on the Minitel service, and Reynal developed a number of Minitel emulators for use on a variety of models within the Amstrad family of computer systems, which was another European computer platform designed, at the time, to compete with the ZX Spectrum and Commodore 64 microcomputers. While Reynal's Minitel emulators would garner him some industry attention, he still, in his heart, wanted to develop games, which is what prompted him to seek out formal employment in the video game industry. In the late 80s, he found the perfect match as he would join the French development company Infogram. 
Infogram was founded in 1983 by Bruno Bonnell and Christoph Zapet and was intended from the start to be a premier video game developer focused, at least initially, on the French computer game market. Similar to some of Renal's early efforts, Infogram developed games for a variety of computer platforms, with perhaps the most well-known title from their early years, at least to me, being a game called Hostages, which ended up being ported to a number of different systems over the years. The version of that title that I played as a kid was called Rescue the Embassy Mission, which was an NES game focused on infiltrating a terrorist-held building in the hopes of rescuing the civilians that had been taken hostage. I remember loving that game, and the variety of gameplay included, which ran the gamut from side-scrolling stealth to sniping enemies appearing in front of windows to rappelling down the side of a building, even infiltrating that building, from an over-the-shoulder perspective. And all of it was simply awesome. Admittedly, I don't have the deepest knowledge of some of the computer platforms Infogram developed for, like the Amiga, so it's entirely possible there are other well-known titles that I'm simply less informed about. But suffice it to say, any glance at Infogram's game catalog shows a company that was pretty prolific in the game development scene, and the sheer variety of experiences they created demonstrates how talented their developers were, as unlike many companies who may have focused on one or two primary game types, Infogram titles spanned numerous genres and playstyles. Which is to say, when Frederick Renal joined the company, he didn't know what the heck his first job was going to be. Maybe he'd work on a side-scrolling platformer, or maybe he'd be tasked with bringing a new role-playing game to life. Well, it turns out he would, instead, be asked to port three-dimensional platforming title Alpha Waves to the MS-DOS computer platform. At this point, some of you might be saying, wait a second, three-dimensional platforming title? What year are we in again? To which I would reply, 1990. Then, I could imagine some of you saying, okay, 1990. So, you don't mean real 3D platforming. You're talking about some sort of pseudo-3D, similar to Doom and Wolfenstein kind of experience. To which I would reply, no, I mean actual, real 3D. As in, a game world with three-dimensional objects, not simply projections of two-dimensional items into 3D perspectives. That might be a bit shocking to some of you. So, I might hear you say, really? And I'd come right back with, yes, Really. While our hypothetical conversation might go on for another few minutes after that, I'll cut to the chase by saying that yes, Alpha Waves was indeed a true 3D platforming title and was in fact developed in 1990. Alpha Waves creator, Christophe de Denichon, was an incredibly smart computer scientist, and in this context, when I say computer scientist, I mean legit scientist level skilled. Many game developers go to school for computer science in order to acquire a job as a software developer, but most of the time, the computer science theory that those individuals learn is just the stepping stone to learning a bunch of programming languages. Christophe de Denichon, by contrast, was more focused on the actual theoretical possibilities of computers, and over his career, he would develop algorithms for computational analysis, operating systems for enterprise-class data center servers, programming languages, and three-dimensional animation, while also authoring three books covering both fiction and nonfiction. His work in the field of computer science, and specifically the operating system efforts I mentioned, resulted in 10 U.S. patents. To put it mildly, Christophe de Denichon is a bright guy. So, when he set his sights on putting some of that theoretical knowledge to the test in 1990, he knew he wanted to do something unique, to test the boundaries of what a computer game engine would be capable of doing. Which is why he created Alpha Waves, considered by the Guinness Book of World Records to be the first three-dimensional platform title ever made. In Alpha Waves, 
you control one of several different aircraft, which are technically just geometric shapes. And your goal is to bounce on a series of trampoline-like objects scattered about three-dimensional spaces in the game, with each bounce allowing you to progress higher and higher into the sky. As you bounce around these platforms, you make your way to various holes in the walls of the room you're in, and assuming you can time your jump and reach the appropriate height successfully, you would make your way through those holes into other rooms, repeating the same process over again, with each platforming room effectively being a self-contained puzzle. While the concept is pretty simple by today's standards, the execution for the time was mind-blowing. Nobody had ever created three-dimensional spaces with such smooth motion in a video game before. Sure, there were other 3D titles, but nothing with the same speed and smoothness of gameplay or the sheer number of objects displayed on the screen at one time. Admittedly, the visuals were super simple. They were flat-shaded, three-dimensional shapes, but the gameplay was unlike anything anyone had experienced before. As Reynal worked on porting the title to DOS, he became enamored with the concept of 3D in computer gaming, and he began to consider that three-dimensional worlds were going to quickly become the next big thing in the video game industry. He knew that he wanted to continue exploring 3D as a technology for his next game, but there was just one issue. He didn't know what the next game was going to be. While he waited his next assignment, Reynal continued to learn about three-dimensional animation and graphics, and after porting AlphaWave to DOS in 1990, he began working on a tool designed to create and animate three-dimensional characters. While he was working on this new tool, he was approached by Infogram CEO Bruno Bunnell and was asked to develop a game whose main gameplay mechanic was the concept of navigating completely dark scenes using a match to highlight snapshots of an individual area. As soon as he heard the idea, Reynal began brainstorming, and he fairly quickly honed in on the potential that the concept had as a core mechanic in a horror title. Believing this would be a perfect match, Reynal went to the CEO and convinced Bunnell that his next game should be a horror experience. Bunnell didn't need to deliberate long before he granted approval for the project, and with that, Reynal set off to begin creating the game that would eventually become Alone in the Dark. Reynal had fairly high aspirations for his game but was also keenly aware of how difficult it would be for computers of the time to render realistic graphics. Recall that while Renal had experience in 3D as a result of his work on Alpha Waves, those 3D graphics were simple flat-shaded shapes. They were not, by any standard, realistic. Because of that experience, as well as the available technology of the time, Renal came to the conclusion that computers of the time were incapable of rendering graphics that would create fear and dread among players. So, he decided to tell most of the story elements via text. Despite the technological limitations, though, his plan was still to create a fully realized three-dimensional world, with real photographs to be used as the foundation for three-dimensional rooms placed throughout what would end up becoming the game's haunted mansion. But this also proved to be challenging, and eventually it was determined that creating a fully realized 3D space would be too difficult to include with the game. So, each background in the game was actually made of two-dimensional images, while characters and items were true three-dimensional models made of polygons. Because 3D models were being combined with 2D backdrops, each and every scene in the game had to be presented very deliberately so as to maintain the illusion of the player traversing a true three-dimensional space, so the game's development team settled on the concept of utilizing fixed camera angles and various scene and camera angle transitions as the player explored the game's environments. Interestingly, while the reason behind the fixed camera angles was purely technical, 
that restriction actually ended up improving the game's tension and horror elements, as the design team was able to frame scenes using cinematic techniques, striving to create the most dramatic and scary camera shots that would ultimately serve to instill a sense of dread in the player. While the discussions of the rest of the game's mechanics are beyond the scope of this episode, and were also covered a bit during our discussion of Resident Evil, the fact is that Reynal had a hit on his hands, and Alone in the Dark would end up being critically acclaimed and generally enjoyed amongst the broader gaming community while being the first title to really shine a spotlight on Infogram as a company. Sure, prior to Alone in the Dark, Infogram was successful and prolific in the development of various gaming titles, and various games had their niche fan bases. After Alone in the Dark, the broader gaming public knew who the company was. And by the way, in yet another first, Alone in the Dark would be recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as being the first 3D survival horror title, which marks the second world's first title infogram and by extension Renal were involved with. Despite the success of Alone in the Dark, not everything was smooth sailing during its development. As we just mentioned, Renal had convinced Infogram CEO Bruno Bonnell to allow him to develop a 3D horror title, and Bonnell did approve that venture without much issue. During development, though, Infogram leadership was often hesitant to explore new ideas, and Renal became frustrated with leadership's hesitation to take risks with new, albeit unproven, game mechanics. Renal was focused on experimentation and creation, while Infogram was concerned that trying too much too soon might hurt sales. For Alone in the Dark, Infogram would be proven wrong, but as work began on its sequel, Reynal once again felt like he wasn't free to try new ideas or explore different game mechanics. Infogram wanted a direct sequel with some light gameplay changes, like more of a focus on action, while Reynal wanted to continue to explore more horror elements while also including additional action than its predecessor. Eventually, Reynal became fed up with Infogram's reluctance to listen to his ideas, so he ended up leaving the company in 1993, along with several other Infogram developers, designers, and artists, to form a new company, Adeline Software. Something I found interesting, but is somewhat tangential to our discussion, is that Adeline Software was founded as a subsidiary to Delphine Software, another French game studio who was responsible for both Out of This World, or Another World, and Flashback, two titles we've discussed on prior episodes of the podcast. I always find it interesting how all of these different companies and histories seem to intersect in some way. Anyway, with the founding of Adeline Software, Reynal was faced with a decision. For the first time in his professional career, he had carte blanche to create the game he wanted to create, free from being assigned a specific project or needing to rein in his ideas to meet some corporate expectations. So he sat down to begin creating a new concept for a game, one that would allow him to embrace all of his ideas, continue to expand the use of 3D in games, and hopefully appeal to gamers around the world. He came up with a concept involving a man imprisoned for having prophetic dreams, a world ruled over by a mad scientist, and a small but powerful resistance who sought to find a legendary being known as the Heir, with the hopes of overthrowing the oppressive regime and returning every island across the land to a peaceful, non-militaristic state. That game concept is what would ultimately form the foundation for Little Big Adventure. While creating Little Big Adventure, Reynal and the team decided on a few main features that the game had to have. For one, it had to be visually impressive. Reynal wanted to continue advancing the state of the art in 3D technology, and he wanted Little Big Adventure to be more technologically advanced than other 3D titles of the time. 
those graphics were intended to bring a game full of whimsy and adventure to life. And Reynal conceptualized a world inhabited by multiple people of different cultures and races, all living on a series of islands that dotted the landscape of the game world's planet. Each of those islands and the areas on those islands were designed to be distinct. Some would feature intense enemy placements, effectively being fortified headquarters, while others would be more peaceful and exploration-focused. And for the player, Reynal wanted to provide complete freedom for how an individual may approach a given situation. Do you approach a heavily guarded fortress from the front, guns blazing? Or do you sneak around and behind guards, silently infiltrating the enemy layer to locate your target? Reynal wanted each approach to be viable, and he felt that in doing so, players would feel immersed and want to continue exploring Little Big Adventure's unique world. With those goals in mind, let's turn our attention to the game's graphics, which were created using three-dimensional models inhabiting an isometric perspective game world. That might not sound all that impressive, and it's true that other games around this time were playing around with isometric perspectives and 3D characters. But those other games often had to compromise in order to achieve any degree of playable performance, oftentimes resorting to displaying graphics at a resolution of 320 by 240 pixels, which was pretty standard for computer technology of the time. Reynal and the team, though, wanted to exceed those expectations, so they ended up designing their title to display graphics in a 640 by 480 resolution, which is effectively four times the number of pixels for a computer to process. Now, you might assume that such a bump in resolution would impact playability, but the team spent extra time developing an approach that would maintain performance, and in fact, in some cases, even exceed the performance of less graphically intense titles, while still running on the same base hardware platforms. I spent some time looking for how they accomplished this frankly amazing feat of engineering, but unfortunately, I couldn't find much of note. If anyone does know more about it, please let me know, because I'm legitimately curious about how the team pulled this one off. Even impressive graphics, though, aren't enough to make a quality game. What you really need are interesting mechanics, and here, Reynald and the team implemented an approach that was somewhat of an evolution of what they had originally created for Alone in the Dark, and that is the concept of moods or behaviors being changeable, depending on your desired approach to a given situation. Perhaps you want to walk around like a normal citizen, talking with others and examining your environment. You can do that. Or maybe you need to get somewhere fast, leaping over obstacles to get away from enemies in pursuit. That'd work too. And sometimes, you may need to take a stand, with the only option being to fight your adversary. Or perhaps a better approach would be to avoid that confrontation altogether, choosing instead to remain in the shadows. All of those possibilities were accounted for in the game's design, and while I'll talk more about what I think about this gameplay system and the resulting behaviors in a little bit, there's no denying that the concept was innovative and added a layer of depth not often seen in other action-adventure titles. Turning our attention to music, great effort was taken by the game's composer, Philippe Vachet, to create a soundtrack that would create the right atmosphere for the game's world, and here, the team was lucky in that they had decided early on to embrace the new-for-the-time CD-ROM format that was quickly gaining market share. The thought was, Using CD-ROM technology would allow the team to expand on nearly every aspect of the title, and from a musical perspective, that meant that Vachet was able to compose music using real instruments, recorded as separate tracks, and played from the CD as Redbook Audio, which is an audio format that simply means the audio is stored on the CD as specific tracks and streamed while it plays, as opposed to being stored as separate files accessible in a computer, like an MP3 file might be today. 
Using Redbook Audio meant that the quality of the soundtrack could be improved beyond other synthesis-based game soundtracks, but it also came with an unforeseen limitation. Beyond the music, the team also wanted to utilize full voice acting for each character in the game, with each voiced character line stored as separate files on the CD. In a game made today, or more accurately within the last 20 years, that would be no issue, because those files could simply be installed onto your computer to be played back at the appropriate time. But hard drives weren't all that big in 1994, and in fact, a state-of-the-art, business-oriented hard drive would likely be a max of around 500 megabytes in size. A CD-ROM disk itself holds 650 megabytes worth of information, so it's fairly obvious that CD-based titles couldn't simply be installed on machines in full. They needed to stream their data when it was needed. The issue here is that Redbook Audio can't stream at the same time as a CD drive would be streaming data files, at least not without causing the audio to stop playing. So, the team had to come up with a workaround, eventually settling on doing a temporary installation of speech files every time you navigated to a new island in the game. That way, they could minimize the impact on playing the game's soundtrack, while also ensuring that hard drives weren't overrun with files that could only be used in certain parts of the game. Not to skip ahead, but a fairly common complaint of this approach were the somewhat lengthy load times that would occur whenever those speech files were being transferred to a user's hard drive, which was likely exacerbated by the fact that CD-ROM drives around this time weren't exactly speedy. The fastest CD-ROM drive available was a quad-speed drive, otherwise known as 4X, and was capable of transferring data at a rate of 600 kilobytes per second. To get those blistering fast transfer speeds, you would have had to spend around $1,000, or the equivalent of almost $2,100 today. As you might imagine, those drives were not used by the majority of the population. More commonly found in consumer computers around this time were single and double speed drives, capable of 150 kilobytes and 300 kilobyte per second transfer rates respectively. With those speeds, even with small speech files, the time required to transfer those files could be a bit excessive. Anyway, eventually, the key elements of sound, gameplay, and game mechanics came together into a cohesive package, and Little Big Adventure would release to the market in late 1994 with several less-than-stellar ports to Japanese computer platforms, as well as the Sony PlayStation following. Upon its release, critics would applaud the game's creativity, high-quality graphics, and engaging gameplay, with some even going so far as to name it one of the best games of all time. Beyond the critical response, Little Big Adventure would capture the hearts and minds of gamers and would prove to be a commercial success, with over 500,000 copies sold within a couple years of its release. Interestingly, though, the majority of those sales would come in Europe, with only 30,000 copies sold in the United States, an absolutely paltry number in comparison to the game's popularity in other geographic areas. So you might be wondering, why such poor performance in the U.S.? Well, it actually comes down to how the game was marketed, as Electronic Arts, or EA, the game's publisher, didn't have faith that the game as designed would have strong sales. EA would reach out to Adeline Software repeatedly prior to release, asking them to make the main character, Twinson, a tougher character, and constantly requesting the game to be made more action-centric. In EA's words, they wanted Twinson to kick ass, believing that the current iteration of the game, with combat being somewhat optional in many situations, just wasn't going to sell in the United States. For their part, Adeline Software refused to change their game, which I think was the right call. Unfortunately, EA still wanted to focus on the combat that was included in the game, so while the rest of the world received Little Big Adventure, 
the United States received relentless Twin Sins Adventure, an attempt to make consumers believe this was more of an action-oriented experience. Even in various advertising materials, EA marketed the title as an action game, choosing to focus on combat as opposed to the more charming, whimsical elements of the game and its world. Now, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but combat is not the strongest part of the game, and I can only imagine how frustrating it must have been to Reynal and the rest of the Adeline software team for EA to completely misrepresent the game they had poured their hearts and souls into. Regardless, the fact is that Little Big Adventure is a title that would touch the lives of numerous gamers around the world, and I'd venture a guess that if you played the title back when it was first released, you would likely have many fond memories of the experience. Those fond experiences and player support would eventually lead Renal and the team to release a sequel in 1997, which would, similar to the first game, sell really well in France and the rest of Europe while dramatically underperforming in the United States. There was general recognition that for some reason, a disconnect existed between the two regions, and GameSpot magazine even referenced this observation in a review for the title, stating, and I quote, that in France, Twinson is big. In the States, he's an obscure oddity. After the 1997 sequel was released, Adeline Software would be sold to Sega and rechristened under the name No Cliché. As No Cliché, the team would develop and release a couple of other games, none of which received any significant attention, and in the early 2000s, the company was effectively disbanded. Delphine Software, the owner of the Adeline Software brand, would attempt to revitalize it in 2002, though this was effectively in name only, as no members of the original team remained in the company. That revitalization would be short-lived, as Delphine Software itself would be liquidated in 2004, which effectively marked the end of Adeline Software in the computer industry. But the story doesn't end there. Frederick Renal and other members of the Little Big Adventure team had continued to believe in the game series, and for the last 20-plus years, they've tried to keep it alive through re-releases, plans for a remaster, mobile ports, and various other efforts to potentially resurrect Twinson. Finally, to the delight of many fans, in 2021, a new company was formed with members of the original Little Big Adventure team, 2.21, and shortly after its formation, they announced that they were working on a brand new entry in the Little Big Adventure universe. At the same time, they also announced full-scale remakes of the first two titles, with modernized controls and graphics, and some revisions to the overall design to make the game feel more like a current title. As you might imagine, expectations and hopes were high, and following the announcement, several updates were posted by the team about overall progress on their efforts. Things seemed to be going well until Little Big Adventure 3 was unexpectedly canceled in July of 2023, with the team citing the inability to find a publishing partner to bring the game to market. While work continues on the Little Big Adventure 1 and 2 remakes, any hopes of a future sequel have had to be put on hold for now. While Little Big Adventure might not have the worldwide recognition of many of the more popular games in the industry, that in no way diminishes what it is, which is a well-crafted, charming adventure that is beloved by nearly anyone who has played it. It's also a shame that Frederick Reynal, as a game designer, doesn't receive as much attention as he ultimately deserves. He may not have the name recognition of a Shigeru Miyamoto, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't be as respected. In fact, in 2006, Reynal, along with Miyamoto and Michel Ancel, the creator of Rayman, were all knighted in France, becoming the first video game designers to ever receive French knighthood as knights of art and literature. 
To say Reynal had a major impact on the video game industry would be an understatement, and without his efforts, Little Big Adventure would have never existed. There are tons of other titles that are more well-remembered and lauded by players around the world, but for some reason, it just feels different when people talk about Little Big Adventure. Anyone I've spoken to, any podcast I've listened to, nearly everything I've read from fans of the game, they all express a true and deep appreciation for the title. Sure, other games may be loved the same way as you might love an athlete for scoring the winning goal in a World Cup match, but with Little Big Adventure, people talk about it almost like it's a family member, an indelible and cherished mark on their childhood, a whimsical and charming tale of adventure, and an experience and memory that will likely remain with them forever. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Little Big Adventure today versus when it was released 30 years ago. Little Big Adventure can best be described as an action platformer adventure stealth title. And as you might expect, given that lengthy description, it does in fact have a number of components of a variety of genres. We're going to dive into the overall game framework first, and as we go through the high-level structure of the game, we'll see pretty clearly why the game defies a simple classification. At its core, Little Big Adventure presents the player with an isometric perspective pseudo-open world in that there are a number of different locations that can be visited and movement is relatively free within those locations. But this isn't a fully integrated open world as the game is split up into a number of islands and on those islands is a series of screens to navigate between. While a given screen can be relatively large, each screen is itself self-contained meaning once you move from one area to the next, the state of the prior screen is effectively reset. So, let's say you cleared out a bunch of enemies from screen X, and then you navigate to screen Y. Well, when you go back to screen X, everything is respawned, and any actions you took short of specific plot-driven events are reset. I should also mention that the game world itself opens up the further you go into the game, with a number of different transportation options added that impact how you navigate from one location to the next. I enjoyed the variety of transportation in the game, which included gas-powered buggies to move between certain screens, and ferries, catamarans, speedboats, and flying dinosaurs to move from island to island, depending on which islands you were navigating between. There are a lot of options at play here, and while some end up being duplicative of others for certain island-to-island moments, most serve very specific purposes. 
There is a side effect to that, though, and that is that if a certain island requires a specific mode of transportation to reach, you may need to backtrack a bit to get to that specific mode of transportation. It's not a huge deal, but I do question why my flying dinosaur can't simply fly to any island in the game, short of those that might be blocked off due to a storyline or plot-based reason. Anyway, maneuvering around the various screens and environments in the game is done exclusively with the keyboard. There are no mouse inputs, and there are no controller profiles. This is an old-school, keyboard-only kind of experience, though that's actually a design choice as opposed to being done by necessity, as mouse inputs were very much available by the time Little Big Adventure launched. So you might be asking, why restrict user input to just a keyboard? And the answer to that is, it actually makes the game more straightforward to play, and at the end of the day, simplifies the necessary inputs to perform any action in the game world. Actually, navigating around the game world is done using tank controls, meaning all movement is based on the orientation of your character as opposed to being aligned statically with the screen you may be viewing. As an example, if Twinson, the main character in the game, is facing to the right, pressing up on your arrow key will move you further right because that's forward from the perspective of the character. This is a decidedly older style of control, and for those who may not be used to it, it does take a bit of getting used to. If you've played other tank control-based games, though, it doesn't take long to get a feel for moving around the game world. In a somewhat interesting design decision, navigating around the screen doesn't automatically move the screen view until you get to the very edge of your screen, which can sometimes make you walk into a trap simply because you can't see an enemy or obstacle waiting for you. The game does provide a workaround, though, in that every time you hit the Enter key, the screen recenters on your character, which I found incredibly useful in navigating around the game world. When I first started playing, I didn't really use the enter key all that often, and I kept getting caught in situations that were deadly at best and incredibly frustrating at worst. Once I realized that recentering the screen really did help with avoiding enemies and traps, the experience became a lot smoother. Once you get used to the movement controls and navigating around the game world, you'll come upon perhaps the most innovative feature in the game, which is the fact that Twinson has multiple moods or modes of movement and action that can be swapped between using your F1 through F4 keys, depending on the situation you find yourself in. These modes are integral to actually playing the game and succeeding in your quest, so let's go through each in some detail. The first mode is known as Normal, which basically means this is the default way you move around and interact with the game world. In normal mode, you walk around the game at a moderate speed and can interact with both the environment as well as other characters. This is the only mode that allows you to actually interact with the environment, which can consist of exploring bookshelves, chests, and other objects for items, flipping switches in dungeons, and talking with other characters. All of those interactions are executed using the spacebar, which effectively acts as a global action key for each of the different modes, although each mode has a different default action that the spacebar will execute. The second mode is known as Athletic Mode, which is the mechanism that allows you to move more quickly through the game world. Your default movement speed using Athletic Mode is a brisk run, and the spacebar here allows you to jump. This is the mode you want to use if you want to get someplace quickly, or if you have to work your way through any number of platforming sections encountered throughout the game world. That platforming, by the way, typically involves jumping across gaps, sometimes over water, which, by the way, is deadly, you cannot swim in this game, Though you may also use the jump ability in athletic mode to vertically explore the environment, as there are certain sections with raised platforms, hills, and other features that you can effectively climb by jumping up them. You might think that using athletic mode would be your default mode of movement, since it really does improve the speed by which you move throughout the game. 
The only issue, though, is that when you use athletic mode and touch an obstacle, you lose some life. Logically, that kind of makes sense, since if you accidentally run into a wall, you would likely feel it. From a gameplay perspective, though, that realism can be a bit distracting. And in fact, some of the re-releases have addressed that issue by removing collision damage from athletic mode. Regardless, in the game's original design, that damage exists, and it does impact gameplay, if only a bit. The third mode in the game is your aggressive mode, which is the mode you want to use if you have to attack enemies. In this mode, you move in a sort of fight stance, which is a bit more cumbersome than athletic or normal mode. And here, the spacebar executes a series of punches and kicks, and there are actually two different modes within aggressive mode. There's auto, which picks one of a variety of punches and kicks automatically whenever you press the spacebar, and there's manual mode, which allows you to pick which attack you use depending on which directional arrow you press in combination with the spacebar. I didn't personally try out manual mode, and the number of enemies you actually want to punch or kick is limited to enemies that aren't armed, the reason for which I'll talk about a little bit later, so this mode is slightly limited in comparison to what you might expect. The fourth and final mode in the game is discrete mode, which is effectively stealth mode. When you activate discrete mode, you move around in a tiptoe kind of stance, accompanied by a cool string pluck sound effect kind of musical note. Moving in discrete mode reduces the ability for enemies to detect you, and pressing your spacebar crouches down and reduces enemy visibility even more. These modes introduce a good deal of variety to the game, and generally speaking, actions are locked to an individual mode and not global in nature. The one action you have that is global is attacking with a magic ball, an item that you find relatively early in the game. This magic ball provides the main mechanism for you to attack and deal damage, though actually aiming that ball, which uses some simple physics to bounce off of objects in the environment, is a bit tricky. Part of that is because of the isometric perspective and the lack of incremental aiming prior to throwing the ball, meaning actually adjusting your aim requires you to turn your character, and those turns are less continuous than what would be ideal for more accurate aiming. So there will often be times where you throw the ball only to completely miss your target. So you adjust your aim, throw the ball, and it goes in pretty much the same spot because you didn't adjust your aim enough. Eventually you get it right, and you will become more proficient as you keep playing the game, but it definitely does not feel natural in comparison to more modern aim and attack gameplay mechanics. Speaking of attacking enemies, your best bet in nearly all instances is to avoid combat, because the combat can be brutal. You do have a life bar and a magic meter, which impacts how far you can throw your magic ball and is also upgradable as you progress through the story. Various items in the game world can help to replenish your life and magic, and there is a mechanic for increasing the number of lives you have by collecting clover boxes, which represents possible lives, and clovers which are placed in those boxes and represent actual lives. You can only collect around 5 total clover boxes, though the number of clovers you can collect replenish and reset as you move throughout the various scenes in the game. And you're going to need those lives, because despite your best efforts at avoiding combat, there will be times where you need to fight it out with any number of bad guys. If you encounter an enemy that isn't armed, you can conceivably attack them using aggressive mode, or you can use your magic ball, whatever your preference. If you're attacking an armed enemy though, like one with a gun or a baton or an electrical device, or pretty much anything with some degree of combat ability, your best bet is to attack at range with your magic ball, because close range battle is almost unwinnable, at least until you get an ultra powerful sword late in the game. And the reason for that is, if an enemy you're fighting hits you in any way, that attack will knock you back, 
and the enemy will simply continue attacking you at a pace that in many cases will lock you in a death spiral. The reason for that is the fact that there are no, or at least minimal, invincibility frames in the game, which means every single attack fired in your direction will hit you. You have no opportunity to escape a tricky situation short of switching to athletic mode and getting lucky while trying to run away, or getting off a magic ball attack that could potentially stun the enemy you're fighting. Short of that, you will either die or be knocked back into an obstacle or be knocked off the side of the screen onto a different screen, resetting your progress in that prior screen. Seriously, combat in this game is extremely challenging, especially before you get used to the mechanics and aiming. Even after you get used to it, that only means that you're attempting attacks at the farthest range possible, which minimizes the ability of enemies to attack you directly, which, while effective, is a bit less immersive than actual in-your-face combat. The difficulty of the combat pretty much guarantees that at some point you'll lose all your lives and die. The good news is that the game does have an autosave system in place, and luckily the autosave is in fact pretty effective at keeping current progress. The only issue is that you don't really have an indicator of when the game autosaves your progress, and while I don't think I experienced a situation where I actually lost any progress, short of restarting certain areas over again, there were some cases where the autosave respawn was pretty far behind the location I was actually at. This added a bit of cumbersome backtracking to the experience, but there were only a few spots where the autosave reset really impacted the experience negatively. Up to this point, most of our discussion has focused on moving around and interacting with the game world, whether via action, platforming, or stealth, but there's also another component to the game which adds a point-and-click adventure flair to the experience, and that is the item and inventory system. In short, as you work your way through the game, you'll find any number of items that you can pick up and use in a variety of ways. Some of those items are consumable to replenish health or magic, while others need to be used to complete quests, and even some others are simply there as markers of progress throughout the game. I've got to say, I enjoyed the inventory and item system, and it really did make the game feel more like an adventure as opposed to a simple platform action game. And it is that combination of elements, the difficult combat, the interesting movement modes, the adventure game mechanics, and the overall game world's design, that comes together into a package that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, I have critiques, and yes, there are things that I believe could have been designed better. But I would argue that despite those critiques, Little Big Adventure is one of the more charming and engaging experiences I have played in recent memory. And we're going to talk more specifically about different aspects of the game in just a minute. But first, we need to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies market their titles, especially around the time frame of the games that we typically look at. We didn't really have a lot of internet availability. We didn't necessarily have a ton of magazine reviews. In some cases, like Little Big Adventure, we didn't really have much marketing in the United States. So for me, I don't even remember seeing this game on the store shelves back when it originally released. So I always like looking at the back of the box because it does give you that indicator. And a lot of times the decision about whether to buy something was based on how cool the box looked and what was written on the back of the box. So for a little big adventure, the back of the box says... As Twinson, prophet and savior, you embark on a surreal and suspenseful journey. You cross continents in your quest to save the world and stop your evil nemesis. At any moment, your enemies may overtake you, stopping you in pursuit of the legend. Developed by Frederick Renal, award-winning director of Alone in the Dark, features incredibly smooth garage-shaded animations and beautiful SGI cinematic sequences. 
12 intriguing chapters to complete across two huge hemispheres with 40 environments to explore. Interactive combat and numerous riddles, traps, and security systems, special objects, and fantastical vehicles to find. Superior real-time AI keeps the game world thinking, even when not confronted by you. And then there are several screenshots on the back of the box, and I should mention that this is one of the re-release boxes, so it is not necessarily the same content as it is on the original release, because even on the internet, it's surprisingly difficult to find what the box looks like. So I gotta say, the back of the box looks kind of good. I don't know that it fully sold me. The marketing speak there wasn't really engaging, at least from my perspective. The visuals, the actual images on the back of the box, made it look like nothing I had seen before, especially for the time it was released. So the visuals would have grabbed me. The words, eh, maybe not quite as much. Anyway, we're going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics here are incredibly well done for the time, with environments that look very high quality with nice use of colors and theming throughout the various areas of the game. The three-dimensionality of the environments are particularly interesting, with subtle hints that certain areas may be explorable embedded directly into the environmental design, which almost encourages you to go off the beaten path to see what kind of trouble you can get into, or what kinds of secrets you can uncover. I remember the first time I realized that I could climb an area by jumping up a series of nearby raised cliffs, and at that moment, I realized there was more to be experienced here than meets the eye. That moment made me look at all of the future environments I encountered just a bit differently, which did in fact lead me to unexpected discoveries depending on where I looked. I also thought that using an isometric three-dimensional perspective for the game world worked really well, and I thought that it absolutely worked within the construct of the game. Characters, meanwhile, are a bit of a mixed bag, with certain characters like Twinson and the various guards you encounter throughout the game taking on a less well-defined round shape that, while simple, looks pretty good. Other characters, though, feel a bit more polygonal in nature, and those designs haven't aged quite as well. They have the decided look of an older, early three-dimensional design, and while they aren't bad per se, they are a bit distracting in comparison to the smoother characters that you'll encounter, and I believe that the character designs in general are a bit lower quality than the game's environments. The game also contains a series of pre-rendered animated cutscenes, and all of these use graphics that can best be described as very early 3D animation and characters. You can definitely tell that the pre-rendered scenes are from an earlier gaming era, and they are definitely quaint by today's standards. But they also have a certain charm that comes along with these early 3D efforts, and I for one actually enjoyed the visuals, despite the fact that from a technical perspective, they were subpar in comparison to more modern efforts. Overall, there's definitely more good than bad as it relates to the game's graphics, and they definitely made the game look and feel charming and whimsical, which I really enjoyed. Moving on to the sound and music. To put it simply, the music in the game is top-notch, with a great mix of light fantasy melodies combined with more driving beats, depending on the scene you're navigating. In all instances, the music fits perfectly with the environments and action on the screen, and some of the tracks were so good that I would gladly add them to an offline playlist to listen to even while I'm not playing the game. The theme music in particular is really high quality, and properly hypes you up for the adventure you're about to undertake. Sound effects similarly were all great, and I particularly enjoyed the fact that the sound of your footsteps changed as you moved around the environment and various types of ground cover in the game. 
As an example, if you're walking on grass, your footsteps will sound different than if you're walking on stone, and I thought this attention to detail was awesome. This kind of thing wouldn't make or break an experience, but it does show the level of care that the design team placed into designing the auditory environment of the game. My one and only critique is the quality of the voice acting in the game, which is mostly okay, but definitely not professional-level voice acting. You can definitely tell that this aspect of the experience was a bit lesser than the rest of the audio, but it's not like the voice acting was bad in comparison to contemporary titles. In fact, if I compare the voice acting to other games released around the same time as Little Big Adventure, it's actually pretty darn good. But in comparison to more modern experiences, it definitely falls a bit flat. Other than the minor critiques about the voice acting in comparison to modern games, I literally have no complaints about the audio. It is simply stellar. Just for reference, though, I should mention that I played the CD-ROM version of the title, which means all of the music in the game was CD audio quality. I'd imagine that the MIDI version of the songs would be a bit lower quality, if only because they'd be dependent on your specific sound hardware. But even so, there is a certain charm in MIDI-based audio itself. Moving on to the narrative and story. In Little Big Adventure, you play as Twinson, an individual who has begun having prophetic dreams about a mystical being and legend that, for all intents and purposes, has been banished from public discussion. The person doing that banishing is Dr. Funfrock, a mad scientist type of person who, in the name of making the world safe, has actually implemented an oppressive militaristic regime intent on keeping him in power and keeping citizens in line and ignorant of his more nefarious schemes. The issue for Funfrock is that the legend speaks of a chosen one kind of being that, once identified, is expected to overthrow the world's oppression and lead its citizenry to an era of peace and prosperity. Obviously for Funfrock, this doesn't sound all that great, since he isn't keen on losing his power, so the oppression he's instilled across the world is in direct response to preventing that legend from coming true. Because of Twinson's recurring prophetic dreams, Funfrock fears that he may be the embodiment of the Chosen One, so he's imprisoned at the beginning of the game, which is when you as the player take over control. While you don't yet know it, you are in fact the Chosen One, and over the course of the game, various quests, and numerous enemy encounters, you realize that you are the only one who can thwart Dr. Funfrock's evil plans. The only question is, will you be able to succeed and save the world, or will you die trying? I've got to say, the story really worked for me. I liked how it built on top of itself as the game continued, and what started out as a relatively minor stakes kind of thing turned into a situation that had world-shaking impact. I enjoyed the way the story was presented and appreciated the underlying lore elements that served to provide additional context behind the various world events that had transpired before and are transpiring in the present. That said... Sometimes the way you move from story beat to story beat can feel a little haphazard. As an example of what I mean, you might be told about a specific task that needs doing, and out of the gate, you have no clue about how to accomplish that task. So you go around and talk to a bunch of people, and eventually you find some random person that happens to have information on what you need to do to proceed. While talking to people in an adventure-like game is totally expected and normal, the fact that some of the story beats are tied to seemingly random encounters can make things feel a bit disjointed. Similar to some of my other critiques, this isn't a major issue, but it is something that distracted a bit from the overall delivery of the story. That being said, it also encouraged additional exploration of the game's world, so in some respects it actually increased engagement. Bottom line, the story was, for the most part, nicely constructed, 
and I enjoyed learning more about the narrative and the broader game world. Moving on to the playability and controls, we talked a good deal about the controls already, so there's not a ton more to mention. What I will say though, and this is something I mentioned before, is that using the keyboard as the sole form of input is actually a totally viable way to play the game, and I can understand why the game's designers centered on this method of input. The way you play the game from a controls perspective is to place the keyboard in front of you with your right hand hovering over the arrow keys and your left hand floating in the center of the left hand side of the keyboard. From there, your left hand can hit whatever F key you need to swap between environments and action modes, and you have easy access to the spacebar action key, as well as the magic ball attack which is mapped to the alt key. Your right hand is responsible for moving your character around the environment, as well as hitting the enter key whenever you need to recenter the viewport on your character. And honestly, this form of control feels incredibly natural after a couple of minutes. I know some individuals who are more used to modern gaming might balk at a keyboard-only control scheme, but it legitimately works for this title, and it doesn't feel dated at all. It just feels like the way to play the game. As it relates to the responsiveness of the controls, there are, for the most part, no issues. Though I will say that aiming your magic ball attack is challenging due to the lack of gradual turning. It is pretty difficult to make small corrections to your aim, which can be frustrating, especially in the heat of battle. Otherwise, though, no real issues to discuss from the controls themselves. From a playability perspective, though, I do have some critiques, some of which I mentioned earlier. For one, the autosave feature is a bit confusing when you start playing the game, though you'll figure out how it works within around an hour or so of dying and restarting a few times. And trust me, you will likely die multiple times in that first hour of gameplay. Similar to dying, but actually more frustrating, is getting caught and imprisoned, which can happen on almost any island in the game. As you play the game, you'll encounter these insanely powerful elephant characters who will throw an orb at you that will completely incapacitate you if you get hit, which, by the way, you will. Once you're incapacitated, you'll be captured and sent to that island's prison, which requires you to break out in any number of ways. Now, I will say, the breakout sequence for the first time you're captured on a given island is interesting and often clever. By the time you hit the fifth time or so, those escapes become pretty cumbersome, especially considering they're often accompanied with a fairly large setback in terms of where you were in the game world versus where the prison is located. Even if you end up avoiding being captured, the combat model in the game is artificially difficult, as anytime you're in combat with an enemy who has the ability to shoot, which is a lot of them, you'll be peppered with bullets with no good way to remove yourself from the situation or to counterattack. This is supremely frustrating at times, which is why I eventually figured out that the best approach is to avoid combat as opposed to engage. If you do need to fight, though, the best method is to attack with your magic ball at range, as your magic ball will often have a longer attack range than enemy attacks. This feels a little bit like an exploit, but it also feels necessary to defeat some unavoidable combat encounters. Some of those combat encounters take place near water, and if you find yourself in that situation, Good luck, because if you fall or get pushed into the water, you will die. There is no recovery, you simply drown. This is frustrating, whether you get knocked into the water or if you misjudge a jump and end up landing in water. Either way, it is not great. And speaking of needing luck to survive, there's a sequence in the very late game where you have to make your way past a series of construction vehicles. And let me tell you, it is surprisingly difficult to get around a bulldozer who has decided it's going to continuously ram you into a wall. Actually, in general, the endgame encounters are much more challenging, with enemies that fire continuous streams of projectiles, so much so that you need a bit of luck in general to survive. 
Luckily, by that point, you'll have an ultra-powerful sword at your disposal, which makes short work of pretty much every enemy in the game. But it still doesn't prevent you from getting constantly knocked back and stunned, which remains very frustrating. Another frustration, though a bit less troublesome than the combat, is the significant amount of back-and-forth movement between islands, some of which require going through a number of screens for no reason other than to reach the required mode of transportation to reach that island. By itself, this isn't a significant issue, but it happens a lot. Like, a lot. On one hand, it was cool to revisit different areas as a more powerful version of yourself, and with new skills that allow you to explore new areas. On the other hand... I feel like there would have been a better way to design the flow of the game to potentially reduce the amount of unnecessary backtracking, or at least make the transportation to different islands more readily available. The end result of all this backtracking is a general slowdown in the last third of the game, which served to impact some of the forward momentum that had been building up to that point. It's not horrible, but it was a bit of a distraction to me. Oh, and one final thing. Running into walls and losing hit points is not a good mechanic. It's simply realism for the sake of realism, and adds no real benefit to the gameplay experience other than the need to move more slowly through environments that many times you've already been through multiple times before. With all that said, there's a ton to like about the game, with the best part from my perspective being the way the game affirmatively doesn't hold your hand as you progress through the various quests and tasks you're asked to complete. There will be times when you're stuck, but for some reason, none of those times feel unfair. They simply feel like a problem that needs to be solved. And for the most part, the solutions to those problems are fairly logical and fit well within the game's framework. Overall, I will say, there are definitely some frustrations with the game's framework and design. But the game is also just so darn charming and whimsical that I can't stay mad at it. Every time I felt frustration and walked away, I started to feel the draw to play it again within a few hours. The game has a strange and attractive pull, and I'm not entirely sure how the development team did it, but despite all of my critiques, I still want to play more and more, especially now that I have a pretty strong grasp on all of the mechanics, even the magic ball throw. It took me hours before I felt comfortable aiming and throwing the magic ball, and I still mess up from time to time. But by the time I reached the last quarter of the game, I felt much more capable, and with those newfound skills, I feel like a second playthrough would be a much more fulfilling and fun experience. So overall, how did it feel to play Little Big Adventure? I'm going to keep this short. The game feels frustrating to play a good portion of the time, but the rest of the time it feels absolutely engaging and above all fun. This is one of those situations where, like I mentioned earlier, the game is greater than the sum of its parts. If I look at certain individual components, Little Big Adventure sounds like it might not be worth your time. But when taken in aggregate, the collective package creates an experience that is so charming that I can't help but smile when I think about playing the game. I know that sounds strange, but it is legitimately the truth. So, what is our final verdict on Little Big Adventure? From my perspective, Little Big Adventure does show its age a bit, especially when comparing it to modern expectations. That said, it also retains the fun and engaging experience that captured the attention of numerous players back in the mid-90s, assuming you put in the time to get over the learning curve and frustrating design elements that might make some people bounce off the game. In fact, I'd wager that anyone who sits down to truly play the game with the fortitude to see it through despite any initial frustrations you encounter will ultimately enjoy the game. Heck, you might even love the game. 
But those frustrations do make the entirety of the experience a bit more friction-filled than what it could have been. And for those reasons, I believe Little Big Adventure is a solid entry in our list of golden oldies. It is not perfect, and it does have some pretty big flaws from my perspective. But the good far outweighs the bad, and despite any critiques I've thrown at it, Little Big Adventure remains a solid gaming experience, and is something that I believe most people should try out. But I also think that if you're going to try it out, you need to actually take the time to experience it fully. Otherwise, I fear you might walk away with a lesser opinion of the game than it deserves. Will everyone like the title? No, I don't think so. But I do believe that if given the chance, many gamers will find a lot to like. And as a result, Little Big Adventure is the newest entry in our list of Golden Oldies. That was our episode on Little Big Adventure. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you all to join. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Super Mario Bros. 3, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts, it's not about trying to harvest a ton of 5-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to make sure that I get the feedback needed to create the best possible podcast I can. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. The only way to continue to grow and to continue to deliver the content you all want to listen to is to let me know if there are any gaps or if there are other things I should be focused on, because I truly do want to make this the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Super Mario Bros. 3. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>